ask you please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Again, we're looking at uh, Acts chapter 15. We're in the second part of Acts, of Acts 15 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 22 to 35, a continuation of, uh, of our, our study of the Jerusalem Council. But I'll read, I'll read all the way from Acts, uh, Acts 15, 1 um, down to verse 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate among them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on the way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Brothers, both both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled, 
and from sexual immorality. If you will keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers and those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we pray that you'd help us to understand it rightly, to understand what it meant to these first Christians, both the the Jews who sent the letter and to the Gentiles who received it. We pray that you'd help us to see what it meant in that context and help us to see, Father, what it means to us in our context, how this enduring message applies to us equally today as it did to them in a very different social context. But Lord, I pray that most of all that you would help us to see our Lord Jesus Christ, to see that salvation comes by him alone. Help us to see, yes, the the standard of the law is perfect love for God and perfect love for others, a standard to which we fall woefully short, but a standard to which he attained perfectly. And help us, Lord, not to look to our own righteousness or the perceived righteousness or unrighteousness of others, but help us, Lord, to, to look to the righteousness of Christ and to rest in the righteousness of Christ. For we prayed in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the mid-2000s, I moved back to North America from Australia to undertake seminary training, and I decided that I'd wanted to go to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And now you might not be familiar with Southern Baptist culture or Southern Baptist or Southern culture in general, but, but in that culture, the, the drinking of alcohol is, at least it was during my time at seminary, a no-fly zone. That it was, it was really um, taboo in, that, in the culture, not just among, amongst Christians, but Christians were perceived to be those who didn't drink. That's how often Christians were identified. And in that context, one of the requirements for students of Southern was that they sign a covenant agreeing, among other things, not to smoke and not to drink. Now, I didn't have a strong opinion either way, but Southern was one of the best seminaries in North America, so I I happily signed the covenant. During my time at the seminary, I was talking to a, a fellow student who disagreed with the covenant and therefore felt free to drink. And we had a good conversation about it, but I explained that the issue here was, was not one even primarily of alcohol, but one of integrity. Because this individual had signed a covenant saying that, that they wouldn't drink, and, and then decided to, because they disagreed with it, decided they could go ahead and drink anyway. point is that if you're going to put your name to something, you need to stand by your word on that. And so the student, to their credit, thought about it and decided to stop drinking. Now I think that issue is, is pretty straightforward. But there's another issue that's a bit more curly, one that I think illustrates our passage this morning. We'll come back to it in a moment. 
Last week, remember, we began with an examination of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and what is ultimately the most important chapter in the book of Acts. First, remember, we saw the controversy as the issue of the gospel itself was on the line as Judaizers from the church in Jerusalem went to Antioch with the message that unless someone is circumcised, you cannot be saved. This, of course, is a false gospel. It's adding works to faith. It's saying that putting your faith in Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection is not enough for salvation. You have to do something in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas disputed with these men, and, and when the issue could not be resolved, they, they, along with a group of others, went back to Jerusalem to bring, to bring the issue before the church uh, elders and apostles. And then remember, we saw the council as, as first Peter stood up and testified of the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith and saying that, that Jew and Gentile are both saved by faith alone through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul and Barnabas lifted up the signs that had taken place. And remember, in that context, the signs served as, as a testimony of the veracity or the truth of what the preacher was speaking. We don't need signs anymore today because we have the Word of God. But in that time, before the Word of God, before the canon was closed, there was it, it was important that the, um, that the the testimony of these early apostles and ministers was testified to by signs. And then, you remember that James spoke up. And James who was the half-brother of Jesus, appealed to the Old Testament, demonstrating how the prophets had clearly spoken about the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's kingdom. And his judgment amounted to four requirements for Gentile Christians in Antioch. That they were to abstain from things polluted by idols. That they were to abstain from sexual immorality. That they were to abstain from what had been strangled. And that they were to abstain from blood. And there's been different interpretations over the years as to what these four requirements are, where they come from. Some would suggest that they come from Leviticus 17 and 18, which, which does forbid consuming blood and, and does forbid unlawful sexual relations. But this context here is actually quite different. As I explained last week, drawing from, drawing from commentator Ben Witherington and many others, uh, Ben Witherington helpfully points out that these elements were common in pagan temple worship. And remember that temple, pagan temple worship dominated the, the cultural context in Antioch and the surrounding region where, in which these Gentiles had come to faith. So then in that context, the Jerusalem Council was calling Gentile believers to reject their pagan past. And in so doing, the council was seeking to preserve the unity of the Gentile believers and to, and to preserve the purity of the Gentile believers. They were seeking to preserve the church in, in that Jew and Gentile would be able to, to worship together without these, these issues that stood out and would, would create an offense in that cultural context. And it would also mean that the, the Gentiles who would be prone to, to going back to, to pagan thinking, they needed to make a clear break with their past so that they could could focus on serving God and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. As Dennis Johnson 
explains that the decision of the Jewish council shaped a new definition of the people of God, one based on messianic faith rather than on ethnic origin or ritual observance. Both Jew and Gentile alike are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It all comes through God's grace. Well, now this morning from verses 22 to 35, we're going to consider the solution as presented by the Jerusalem Council and how it's received by the church in Antioch. We're going to again see the rationale of the encouragement of the Gentiles to follow these requirements to make a break with their pagan past. We're going to focus especially on how these requirements preserve unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians. We're going to do so in consideration of Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, 1 to 11, 1, which focus, and focus especially on chapter 10, where at first glance, Paul seems to be contradicting the requirements that were laid down by the, Jewish count, by the, the Jerusalem Council. But first, let's return to my illustration from Southern Seminary for a moment. As I said, the issue that I want to talk about is, is not as clear-cut as abstaining from alcohol when you've signed a covenant saying you would. There was a small group of men that I knew, mostly made up of graduates from Southern, who would gather regularly to smoke cigars and drink whiskey. Now, they, they called it the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Fellowship. Now, I'm not going to get into, into my views of, of of how I feel about this at the moment, feel free to ask me about it afterwards. But I will say these men were not getting drunk and nor were they addicted to alcohol. Those issues are very clear in Scripture. But they invited me to come to the, their ATF, and when I mentioned the student covenant, they assured me that, that, that most of the, the men who were there were graduates from Southern. They were no longer uh, students, and so they were no longer under the covenant. And then, But I said, I, I wouldn't because... Because I'm still a student. I'm, a, I'm under the covenant. They said, well, you, could, you can come and, and just not partake of, of the alcohol and the tobacco. Well, what do you think I did? Do you think I went? And what do you think the, the rationale was for my decision? Do you think that I, if, I, if I went, why did I go? And if I didn't go, why didn't I go? And what would you have done? You know, maybe you found yourself in a similar situation where a believer invites you to do something that's in perhaps in somewhat of a gray area. What would you do? And what about if an, if a, an unbeliever invites you to do something that, that is in perhaps somewhat of a, of a gray area? What should you do then? Well, the principles that are presented in Acts 15 that are teased out in Romans 14 and 15 in 1 Corinthians provide us with guidance. Now, now, you may have, have already figured out what I did, but I'm going to tip my hand just a little bit. I don't believe that Paul said anything to contradict Acts 15 in those other passages. The Word of God never contradicts itself. Paul did not contradict the Jerusalem Council. So then let's consider the solution to the controversy that the council provides. First of all, the delegation in verses 22 to 29. We're going to spend most of our time and going to quickly run through the reception that was received in verses 30 to 35. Again, as we saw last week, the council was seeking, above all, to preserve the gospel. If they acquiesced even for a moment, they say that you had to 
be circumcised or do anything in order to be a Christian, anything more than simply trust in Christ, the gospel would have been undermined and the church would have been effectively cut off at the knees. They were also seeking, though, to preserve the spiritual health of the Gentiles. And, and again, as will be our focus this week, they were seeking to preserve the unity between Jew and Gentile in the church. As Daryl Bach explains, these actions are taken for the unity of the church. It shows not only how the interrelationships among early church communities function, but also how they are to handle their diversity with discernment and deference. Furthermore, it also evidences the mutual respect that the various communities have for each other. So then verses 22 to 29, the delegation. Based on the judgment that is made by James in light of the testimonies of Peter and Barnabas and Saul and in light of the testimony of Holy Scripture, the apostles, the elders, and the whole church agreed to a course of action. Now notice here that the whole church agrees. This, this looks like congregationalism to me. I'm being facetious. But it actually does sort of look like congregationalism. But it's interesting because many Presbyterians actually see Acts 15 as providing a framework for Presbyterian church governance. Now, frankly, I don't see how you can get there hermeneutically. I just see a description of what happened in this particular context. I don't see how you can end up with Presbyteries and, and synods and classes and all that from, from this text. This is showing us how the Jerusalem Council preserved the gospel and told the Gentiles to avoid pagan practices and for their own spiritual being and for the unity of the church. This is not presented as a prescription for church governance. It also shows how the, the Jews were to welcome the Gentiles on the basis of Christ. Not on the basis of, of anything but Christ. But I do think it's important here for, for us to understand and to recognize the unity of the church in making the decision. Remember back in, in verse 5. Remember that when, when Paul and Barnabas came back and brought their report and explained the issue of what happened in Antioch, remember that, that he flushed out some Judaizers within the congregation. Now, remember they said down in verse 5, he said, or up in verse 5, he said, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. These were Christians. He, Luke here calls them brothers. They were Christians who had come from the party of the Pharisees. So they, were, they were showing their, their, their cultural presuppositions based on, on their experience. Now, as I mentioned on Sunday, again, there, there would be commentators who would, who would differ on this, but I believe this is, this is a different issue than what was taking place in verse 5, where there were actually these men who had come from, possibly men from the same group, but they'd gone to Antioch saying, unless you're circumcised, you can't even be saved. So I, I think this is, is a different issue here. I think it's a, on a, a lower level, but it, it's not a, essentially a gospel issue. It's secondary, but it's still very important. So he flushed out these Judaizers in the church, and this, this issue that, that they had to, the Gentiles had to revert to, to the Mosaic law. Not necessarily here, I don't believe, for salvation, but, but as a, a moral requirement. But notice here that when, when it's discussed here and also later on, it said the whole church was in agreement. So whatever the, these, these people who disputed what, what Paul and Barnabas were, were saying, and, and then what, what Peter and, and James are saying, they, they either left, which I don't think they did, they're brothers, 
or they agreed. They, they were convinced of the issue. They, either way, they're, they're silent. They're silent. And it seems that the decision of the council was accepted by all. And I think we can praise God for that. However, the issue of keeping the law is going to come up again, as we're going to see in, later on in Acts 21 when the Apostle Paul returns to Jerusalem. But that's, that's a little ways off. The apostles, the elders, and the whole church agreed that it was a good idea to send men from the Jerusalem church along with Barnabas and Saul with a letter explaining the determination of the council. So they sent two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, sorry, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas. And Luke here describes these, these two men as leading men among, among the brothers. Later in verse 32, he's going to refer to these two men as prophets. And we don't really know anything about Judas Barsabbas apart from what we see in this passage. Other than the fact, than the fact that this is a, a very Jewish name, Judas being the Greek form of Judah, and Barsabbas meaning son of the Sabbath. It's actually possible that he was the brother of, of Joseph Barsabbas, one of the apostolic candidates from back in Acts chapter 1. But we, we don't know. There's no way to know that. Silas, however, we know a bit more about. Silas is a, is a, a, a distinctive Greek, is distinctive of, of the short, short form of Silvanus, which means forest, um, which, again, just as a side, it's not important. But it, maybe it's important to him. But, but at the end of the chapter, we'll see that Silas accompanies Paul as Paul goes back to the churches where where Paul and Barnabas had previously ministered. We're going to see a break next week, uh, a really horrific break between Barnabas and Saul. But then Silas, well, Barnabas goes one way with John Mark, and, and Silas goes with Paul in the other direction. And, and Silas is going to actually be there repeatedly. He's going to go with Paul. He's going to be with Paul in Berea and Philippi and Corinth. It's, 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 actually, um, it's actually Silas who is there with Paul, when Paul's arrested and, and goes to jail in Philippi, Peter is going to refer to his full name, Silvanus, and, and, and uh, we see this in several of the epistles, but notice, notably in 1 Peter, it's actually Silvanus or Silas that serves as the scribe that, that wrote 1 Peter. So 1 Peter was, was written down at the dictation by Silvanus or Silas at the dictation of Peter. I think it's important here to consider the fact that here we have from the Jerusalem church a man who is very clearly a, a Hellenist, a, a Gentile, not a Hellenist Jew, but a Gentile in Silas and Judas Barsabbas who were sent to go with Paul and Barnabas with this letter back to the, the churches in Antioch and the surrounding region. What do you think that might be? Why would they send a Jew and a Gentile together along with Paul and Barnabas? I think they were sent together as a living representation of the gospel unity between Jew and Gentile. Verses 23 to 28 record the actual content of the letter. It's very likely that, that, uh, that Luke would have actually had a, a copy, uh, of the original copy of the letter, or even perhaps the very original letter itself, because remember Luke had traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys as well. So Luke very likely is just taking this down verbatim as he wrote Acts 15. The letter itself is written in the, form, the formal style which was typical of a, 
of an official letter in Greco-Roman culture. Nonetheless, I want you to notice that it's, it's very warm. It's, it's written expressly from, from brother to brother, from the, from the Jewish brothers who are the, the apostles and the elders to the Gentile brothers who are in Antioch and the surrounding region. It was for the churches, again, of, of that whole region, not just Antioch itself, but the surrounding region. We'll see in, in Acts 16, Paul is going to then deliver the message of this letter to the, the churches that he had previously planted, not just the church in Antioch. The, the salutation, which is translated in English, greetings, is very warm. It literally, it literally means, we wish you to rejoice. We wish you to rejoice. Now, I don't know when... When you when you write a letter to somebody, say somebody, dear, dear friend, I, I would encourage you to, to stop and think. Like, don't just write the words "dear," right? Like, actually think about what you're saying. Is this that? And may God make this person truly dear to you in your heart. Likewise, here we see that the close of the letter, verse 29, is also warm. It it says farewell, which means we wish you well. He says they say that if you do this, you will do well. And he says we wish you well. Wish you would do what's in this letter and that we wish that you would do well. Likewise, I encourage you, when you, when you write, when you finish a letter, when you close the letter to somebody, really think about, about the words you say when you close the letter. Say, when you say, by God's grace or, or with, with love in Christ or, or whatever it is, may God help you to be sincere, doing that truly from your heart. Verse 24, we're going to revisit that again in a second. Uh, verse 24 is a repudiation of the men and of the message that had gone to the church in Antioch we heard about in verse 1. Said so those that those had said to you that you that unless you were circumcised, you cannot be saved, had gone out from the Jerusalem church, but they were not sent by the Jerusalem church, and they had no instructions or authority from the Jerusalem church to proclaim this false gospel. So uh, from the outset, they're acknowledging that this message was troubling, that it was unsettling. Now both words mean to cause distress. Words can cause distress, and, and there's no greater distress than that which is caused by a false gospel. But I wonder, do you distress people with your words? Do you tear down the church with your words? Or do you build up the church with your words? Again, if there's nothing that it can tear, tear people down or tear a church down more than a false gospel, there's nothing that can build a church up more or encourage people more than the words of the gospel. So may, may our words be gospel words. May we speak the gospel above all things to each other. May we speak the gospel to ourselves. May we stop just listening to ourselves and stop yakking in our own ear, but may we instead preach the gospel to ourselves. And then from that context, you're going to, be, you're going to have that, that desire to be preaching the gospel to each other as well and building up each other. James 3, 5 and 6 warns us about the danger of the tongue as a small member that sets ablaze a forest and sets ablaze the entire course of one's life because it is set on fire by hell. Again, if ever there were tongues that were set on fire by hell, it was these tongues in verse 1. If ever there were words that caused distress, 
It was these words from verse 1. This false gospel, every false gospel, causes distress and puts people, because it puts people's salvation in their own hands. Every false gospel tells people that they have to save themselves. But people ultimately know in their hearts that they can't save themselves. So they work harder, digging a hole for themselves, a deeper pit from which they can never climb out. Friends, Christianity is the only religion, the only religion in the entire world that that preaches the true gospel. It is only Christianity that preaches salvation by faith alone. Every other system of salvation, whatever they call it, in every other religion is works-based, except Christianity. It has the only good news that salvation is not found in you, it is found in another, simply by faith in Jesus Christ. So again, by God's grace, let your words be saturated with the gospel. May may you speak the gospel to yourself, may you speak the gospel to each other for the building up of the church. In verses 25 to 27, the letter explains the rationale for sending Barnabas and Saul, or Paul rather, along with Judas and Silas. Again, you can see the unity of the church in making the decision. The decision here is made with one accord. They sent the letter by, as it says, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Again, you can see the warmth here in this letter. The men who were beloved by the church in Antioch were also beloved by the church in Jerusalem. Friends, I hope you're seeing the pattern here. I hope you're seeing the pattern here. This is intentional. Now, some of us are are, are naturally of a a more friendly disposition. But some of us, I feel, need to become more intentional to show ourselves friendly. Out of gospel love for your brothers and sisters, we, all of us, should seek ways to show that we care for them. Eye contact and a simple smile can go a long way to communicating friendliness. Now, on a day when so much of our, of our correspondence is done by email, we need to recognize that, that emails are a very challenging context in which to show friendliness. And texts are even harder, but I, I, I think the friendliness of this letter, again, is a helpful reminder to us that we need to be careful to communicate friendliness, especially when we have to deal with, with a difficult issue. And so stop and ask yourself whether what you are communicating is what you mean to communicate and stop and consider how it will be received by the person to whom you are communicating. Don't get in your own way or get in the way of those to whom you want to communicate. Consider ways you can frame your, your language and your body language so that it can be received in the best possible way. That's all free. That's all on the side. But this, this letter here reminds the church in Antioch of the fact that Barnabas and Paul had risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word here risk, that's translated risk their lives can either mean devote or it can mean risk. And for Barnabas and, and Paul, it clearly meant both. The devotion to Christ repeatedly put their lives in danger. With Paul, even remember, being in chapter 14, being stoned and left for dead by the crowd. But it would have been obvious to the Christians in this region 
that Barnabas had, and Paul had risked their lives at a devotion, not just, not just for Christ, obviously most importantly for Christ, but also for them. That they had shown their love for these Christians in Antioch and the entire region again and again and again. So in, in pointing this out, they're not trying to, to puff up Paul and Barnabas, but this is a commendation of Paul and Barnabas in their role as emissaries. As, as those who are, are a, an appropriate choice to, to bear this important letter. And Judas and, and Silas here are, are sent to confirm the letter. They're, they're there to present an oral testimony as further proof that the letter that was being sent was not a forgery. Well, finally, here in, in verses 28 and 29, we, we get to the meat of the letter. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit, notice it says. Again, the church agreed. The us is the church. The church agreed, but this time not just with each other, they also agreed with the Holy Spirit. Remember, Peter had highlighted the fact that the Holy Spirit had testified to the inclusion of the Gentiles apart from obedience to the law in verses 8 and 9. And then in verse 9, Paul had confirmed what God had done with them. This is with them and through them. This is also through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then James had brought the argument home by highlighting the words of the prophets in Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Gentiles would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. David Peterson says that the Spirit's work in the council was to enable the participants to acknowledge these historical and scriptural evidences and to come together to the right conclusions and the practical implications, end quote. Friends, the Holy Spirit was central to the inclusion inclusion of the Gentiles and to the testimony of the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, this is radically new in redemption history, that the Gentiles in in a large way would, would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now the Holy Spirit is central and bears testimony to the gospel of salvation by faith alone and of these four requirements that are given to the Gentiles. So again, this letter now in verse 20 lists the four requirements. They're presented here in in very similar terms, but in different order from that which we saw in verse 20. Again, they're to abstain from things sacrificed to idols. They're to abstain from blood. They're to abstain from what has been strangled. And they're to abstain from sexual immorality. Again, these four things were an integral part of pagan temple worship. The first three had to do with meat that was sacrificed to idols in in the temple, and the fourth was related specifically to temple prostitution. But again, the the application can be made more broadly. All of these things were epidemic in Greco-Roman culture. These things were an abomination to Jews, both to Christian Jews and to unbelieving Jews, non-Christian Jews. Christian Jews would have had a very hard time fellowshipping with with Gentile Christians who had gotten mixed up in any of these things. Non-Christian Jews would be far less likely to, to listen to one who was participating in these things. So they would be less likely to listen to a Gentile Christian who was trying to share the gospel with them if they had any involvement in the pagan temple worship. But more than this, these things were also an offense to God. As Daryl Bach explains, the prohibitions are designed not only to prevent offense to Jews, but also, if they are tied to worship, to prevent offense to God. 
As I mentioned earlier, these, these issues are teased out practically in Romans 14 and 15 and, and in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to, to 11, 1. So let's just, let's just go there together for a few minutes. Let's first go to, to Romans chapter 14. Now, as you're aware, I'm, I'm planning when we finish Acts to begin a study of, of Romans, and I have no idea how long it's going to take us, but I anticipate we'll probably get to Romans 14 sometime in the next. But here's a teaser trailer. One of the, the first, I'm referring to movies again, one of the first purposes that Paul one of the first reasons why Paul wrote Romans was to highlight the unity of Jew and Gentile in the church. Because it's, it's helpful when you read Romans to think about it in that context. It's, that's one of the main issues that Paul is dealing with in, in Romans. And in so doing, he's going he's to tease out a, a host of other vitally important doctrines. So in verse 14... Paul says that they were quarreling over opinions in the church and passing judgment on each other through what they allow or, what th- or through the, what they don't allow. This is the, like the issue of practical application that we spoke about with the kids about entertainment. I heard it explained something like this. This was tongue-in-cheek and, and applied to, to drinking, to spicy food, and to driving style. Everyone who likes something weaker, milder, or slower than me is a wimp. And everyone who likes something stronger, faster, or hotter is reckless. So we set ourselves up as the standard. And we measure other people as if you're either more liberal than me or more conservative than me. Or some would even, some would even say you're either you're more faithful than me or less faithful than me. But the issue is, circle it back around, they want to view themselves as being the most faithful. So they might even say, well, well you are antinomian, you're lawless in the way that you live your life, or you're legalist by the way you live your life. Again, we set ourselves up as a standard. But Romans 14, 4 and 5 is clear. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So it's, it's again an admonition against judging other people. Again, especially in these, these gray areas. And Romans 14, 13 to 19 really provides the meat of, of Paul's argument. Again, he says, don't pass judgment on one another any longer, but, but aside, never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And again, so he, he, he says here, this, he refers to the, the, the cleanliness not laws have been abrogated. He says, nothing is unclean in itself. But he says, again, the end of, of verse 14, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So he says that if, if your brother or sister is grieved by what you allow in your own life, then you are not loving your brother or your sister. He says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He acknowledges that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he says, let's, let's pursue Rather than pursuing our own desires, he says, let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Okay, let let go of your own rights, perceived otherwise, out of love for your brother and sister, out of devotion for Jesus Christ. And in chapter 15 here, he presents Jesus Christ as the standard who did not seek to please himself, 
but who loved his neighbor to the point of laying down his life as the sin bearer. He became the servant to the circumcised to confirm God's promises to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. Again, Jesus Christ is the standard. We, we all of us, fall woefully short of this. That's why we need to, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves that, that Christ filled up what is lacking in our righteousness, and we all are abysmally lacking in our righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. The only righteousness that we have, we have as Christians, that has been imputed, imputed to us, credited to us, the works of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The argument in 1 Corinthians is similar. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul has already demonstrated in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that sexual immorality is forbidden. It could be applied more broadly as he does in chapter 7, but the context, the immediate context, is that of temple prostitution, which, which was particularly rampant in Corinth. Corinth was a, was a port city, and, and as such, all, you can imagine, all the sailors were there, and the, temple, the, the, temple pro, the temples were there with the temple prostitutes. It was, it was a large part of, of that Corinthian culture. Now, when you move ahead to chapter 8, Paul carefully explains that an idol is nothing. An idol is nothing. But in verses 4 to 6, where he develops this, he says an idol has no real existence. There's no real God but one. Okay, everything else is just a so-called God. For us, there's one God, the Father, for whom all things, for are all things, and from all things and for whom all things exist, and we exist. One Lord, one Jesus Christ, through whom all things are all things, and through whom we exist. Okay, one God, one Father, one Son, and by implication also one Holy Spirit. But he says, we need to be careful not to offend our fellow Christians, those who have a weak conscience, who might follow your example of eating food sacrificed to idols. You might, they might say, hey, look, John did it. And then they might follow my example. And then when they eat food sacrificed to an idol with a, with a weak conscience, in their minds, they're actually eating food that's sacrificed to an idol. And so their consciences are defiled. And so I would, by so doing, I'd be destroying my brother or my sister. The conscience will be defiled. Verses 11 and 12. So by your knowledge is this weak person destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding the conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And then in chapter 9, Paul uses the illustration of his refusing to receive an income from the Corinthian church as a way that he limits his freedom for the sake of the church and for the sake of those he desires to, to evangelize. Now, there's other times when Paul will receive an income. But here he's doing so in order to present himself as an example of one who sacrifices his own freedom for the sake of the body and also for the sake of those that he wants to evangelize, those who are not yet part of the body. Now look down at, at verses 19 to 23. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. 
He says, though I'm free of all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. He says to the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as though one under the law, though not myself being under the law, I might win so that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, that's Gentiles. I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And then bringing the argument home in, in chapter 10, Paul provides another reason to flee idolatry. Here in verses 14 to 22. He says, flee from idolatry. Okay, he says the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participate. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Talking about the Lord's table, the bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's saying that 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 when when you when you go into a a temple and participate in a temple feast, you are becoming defiled by entering into that temple and partaking in that feast. Because it's, it, this is, it's directly associated with worship. And he's saying you need to flee from that. Now he's, saying, he's not saying here, uh, verse 19, the food that is offered, he's not saying that the food offered to idols is anything, nor is an idol anything. But he's saying that what the pagans sacrificed, they offered to demons. And he says, so I have nothing to do with that. He's saying stay out of the temple and it's temple worship. So, so you can see on the face of it, where in chapter 8 and, and here also in chapter 10, it, it appears on the face of it that, that Paul first is, is contradicting the Jerusalem council. But he isn't. He's actually affirming. He's, he's illustrating and applying the ruling of the Jerusalem council. Down in verse 25, here he says that he says, you're free to eat what's sold in the marketplace. Yeah, this is this is food that's been sacrificed to idols. But but remember, I quoted Ben Witherington last week. The, the question is is one of of venue, and not just of menu. It's something different when the, the food is actually now in the marketplace. It says, eat it without asking questions. It's different from what was taking place in the temple. It's also it applies in someone's home. He says, if you're eating with somebody and they, and they tell you, well, he said, don't ask questions. But if they tell you, hey, this food's been sacrificed to idols. Hey, this food is halal. Then you can say, no, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want to create, a, I don't want, it's not because my conscience, I don't think it idols anything. Halal is nothing. Allah is nothing. But for the sake of your conscience, I don't want to create a stumbling block for you. Again, whether it's, it's as an, for an unbeliever or for a believer, I'm going to limit my freedom. I'm free to eat or not to eat in that context. But I want to limit my freedom for the sake of, of my brother and for the sake of those to whom I would evangelize. So again, you can see that, that Paul is, is not contradicting the Jerusalem council. He's actually illustrating it. He's applying it. The reason that Gentiles were to avoid food sacrificed to idols was, again, to break away from pagan temple worship. 
and also so as not to create an offense among the Jews who were fellow Christians and again to the Jews to whom they wanted to minister. We see another parallel of this in Acts chapter 16. Where if, if again, if you look at, at, verse, um, at verse 3 of Acts, of Acts 16, Paul has Timothy circumcised. And when you think he, when Galatians, he goes to the wall on the issue of, of circumcision, saying, don't do it. If you, if, you accept, if you accept circumcision, you're cut off from Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, he, when, the, when the Judaizers come in and try to spy out their freedom, he says, I refused to, to go along with them even for one second. I refused to have Titus circumcised. So we hear he has Timothy circumcised, whose father was a Gentile, but, but his mother was a Jew. But he has, he, has the, the, he has Titus. He refuses to have Titus circumcised. So, so is, Paul, is, is Paul here undermining the decision of the Jerusalem council? No. Paul isn't, isn't, isn't contradicting the Jerusalem council any more than, than, than Paul is, is, is contradicting himself between 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. It's context-specific. And I think it's a good application for us. We need to be culturally sensitive. Now, I'm not, there's a, a, I'm not talking about, about going along with, with things that are, are clearly against God's word. But in some of these areas that are, that are a little bit gray, you, you really need to pray for wisdom from God to know when to say, okay, I'm going to do that, or I'm not going to do that. I don't want to, my, primarily I want to, I want to please Christ. I want to follow in Christ's footsteps by limiting my freedom for the sake of my brother, limiting my freedom for the sake of those who would, um, who would be offended and would not be, be ready to hear the gospel from me. You know, again, I hate to, I hate to bring up a, the, the, the C word, but there, there's a very practical example of this during COVID. I remember Joshua preached on some of these things. But the issue of, of, of a mask is a perfect example. I'm, in God's grace, I'm free to wear a mask. I'm free not to wear a mask. But I want to, I wanted to, to, to let, to show my freedom by submitting as, as far as I could and by not showing, especially amongst unbelievers. If, I, if I'm talking to an unbeliever and he's not wearing a mask, I wouldn't wear a mask. But if he's wearing a mask, I wear a mask. Mask is nothing. It's outside the body. I can take it off. I can put it off. If, if, if Paul is dealing with circumcision in these ways, how much more do they apply to things like masks? Again, we need to allow each other freedom in Christ. Seeking to, to obey God and doing everything we can to, 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 be, to be deferential to other people. It's not just, it's not just masks. This is, this is something as, as our culture gets... It gets more and more ungodly. There's, there's going to be more and more things that, that we, need, we need God's wisdom and how we respond to them. Taking, taking a, yes, taking a stand for righteousness and, and many things, refusing to have anything to do with. But, but if we're going to cause that offense, let it, let it be because of gospel issues. Okay, very quickly, let's look at verses 30 to 35, the reception. So with this, with letter in hand, Paul and Barnabas are sent off by the Jerusalem church and, and, the, um, and Judas and Silas go with them. 
And so they gathered the church together and they, they delivered the letter. Now, as would have been commonly done, they, they would have stood there and, and they would have, and, and very likely Paul is the primary um, speaker, would have, would have read the letter out to the church. Now remember, this is a church that's made up predominantly of, of Gentiles. Now, how did the church respond? They rejoiced. They, rejo- they rejoiced because of the letter's encouragement. And this letter immediately did three things. First of all, and most importantly, it settled their hearts and their minds about the gospel. And in so doing, set them free from feeble attempts to save themselves through their obedience, whether through circumcision or through anything. Secondly, it exhorted them to, to show their faith by turning away from idols. And again, these, these men and women are, are those with who, in whom the Holy Spirit was already at work. This is something they, they earnestly desired to do. They might have been had to work through the practicalities of what that might look like in their culture, but, but because, again, a fish doesn't know what it feels like to be wet. But as the, with this here, as a, as a clear line that was drawn, they say, yeah, okay, you need to reject the temple, the pagan temple. And third, it encouraged them to love the Jews in their midst, both the believing Jews who are part of the body and the unbelieving Jews by avoiding unnecessary offense. In verse 32, Judas and Silas, who again here, Luke says that they were prophets, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. See, this is evidence that they liked long sermons. But again, I'm no prophet, but, but anyway, take that as it is. They encouraged and strengthened brothers with many words. Okay, they, they, they exhorted the congregation. They, they strengthened the congregation's resolve to, to worship of God and to obedience to God, to love for God and love for their brethren. And then after some time, they were, they were sent off in peace. So they, they completed their mission and they, they, they were sent home in peace. Now, if you notice... In probably the Bible you have in front of you, go jump straight from, from verse 33 to verse 35. The, some manuscripts include verse 34. It says, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And it, again, it doesn't seem to fit the, con, the immediate context. But the, again, the, the earliest and the best manuscripts don't contain this verse. Okay, they were probably made by copyists to account for the fact that, that Silas was still present in Antioch at verse 40, but, but Silas easily could have, could have gone and come back again. Okay, the, the majority of the early manuscripts don't actually include this verse. So I, again, there's no major doctrine that that's, it's here, but, but it's probably not in the original manuscripts. And finally, verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord and many others also. So the message is that the Jewish, the Jewish brothers could continue what they were doing. They could still be circumcised if they so desired. They could still follow the Mosaic law if they, they so desired. They were also free. They didn't have to do it either. But the Gentile believers were not forced to become Jews. And both Jew and Gentile were unified in the gospel. They were unified 
in the gospel. And so with this, with this accomplished, with this matter settled, now the church would begin almost immediately again to flourish. And so now we, see, we can see that at the end of verse 35, that, that there were many others. It was Paul and Barnabas who were teaching, but now many others were also there teaching with them. The, the church is, is flourishing as, as many more are proclaiming the word of God. So as we close, we, we saw last week that the instruction was to the Jewish Christians that they were to welcome the Gentiles without requiring the Gentiles become Jewish. But the Gentiles, we see here, were, were to remember that they were no longer pagans and so they, they were to avoid offending God, to avoid offending their Jewish brothers and sisters and would-be Jewish brothers and sisters to whom they shared the gospel. So the church was, was free to be the church, regardless of whatever culture they came from. It's beautiful. Gospel unity. You know, this world is clamoring for, for unity. They're, they're trying to, to legislate unity. And I've talked about this before. There's this, this fight against racism, even at the very face of it, is, is ignoring the fact that there's really only one race, the human race. And all all belong to the human race with, from whatever culture they belong to and that there is no solution to disunity by trying to force, it, force unity on people. What people need is new hearts. It's only the gospel that can bring true unity. And I'm, I'm excited as I see our, our church slowly but, but increasingly becoming more diverse. It's a beautiful picture of, of what God does in saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So what did I do? Down in, in, in Louisville, down at the seminary, in a very, very different culture from, from Canada, and especially from the culture I just came out of in Australia. Hands up if you think I didn't go to the ATF. Hands up high? Hey, hands up if you think I did go. Okay, a few people, people who know me well think I did. I didn't go. I didn't go. I knew I was free to go, but I declined the offer. Because it, from my consideration of, of the issue, I, I knew that I was in, in the South. Okay, and, and again, from Southern culture, Christians just stayed away from alcohol altogether. And so if I somehow was trying to, to witness to, a, to an unbeliever in that culture, it would be extremely difficult. And so it just happened. So I said, you know what? I, 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 again, I wasn't judgmental, those guys. But I said, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to come. And also, I, I, was, I had concern that, that for, for believers, that, that there were many believers, including my own seminary, Men that, that I respected immensely that, that said they thought that in their consideration of the culture that we should avoid these things. And so in that context, I said, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, to stay away from it. Friends, those who are truly free are free to lay down their freedoms for the sake of the gospel or in order to keep your brother from stumbling. May we use the freedom that we have given to glorify Christ. 
the context, this, this, we all quote 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever I do, whether I eat or drink, I do all to the glory of God. The context of this is laying down your freedom for the sake of the gospel out of love for your brother and sister and out of love for those to whom you want to minister. May we be those who lay down our freedoms for the sake of the gospel. You know, I know that there are times that I have failed to love. I regularly fail to love. I, think I, I do think I got it right that time, but I'm sure there's many more times I get it wrong. So what do I do? And I see this is, this is, I seek to do the right thing out of, out of obedience to, to, the, to the great commandment. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I'll be honest with you, I've never done that. Ever. And neither have you. Focusing here specifically on this, I've, I've never loved my neighbor as myself. Now, I'm not conscious that I'm always doing my, what I do selfishly, but, but in my heart, there is no good thing. All of my righteousness is filthy rags. So if I were to peel back the layers of that onion deeply enough, I'm, I'm sure, some of this is close to the surface, that there is selfishness that I'm motivated by. And so what do I do? What do you do when you fail? We look to the one who never failed. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to his perfect example, yes. We realize we fall short, woefully short of his perfect example. And so we recognize the fact that he lived that life for us, that he died for those, all those times that you and I failed to love each other as we should. You know, we don't just buckle down and, and try, to, and try to, to do it better next time. Let alone we don't judge other people for failing to do it the way we think it should be done. We encourage them to look to Christ as well. We look to the one who never failed. We trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is only in doing that that we will find the freedom that we have to walk in obedience and to walk in love as we grow through the power of the Spirit at work in our hearts. May all of us behold Christ, behold the gospel, and by his grace and for his glory, live out the gospel increasingly through the power of the Holy Spirit, showing love for God and devotion to God and showing love for our brothers and sisters and showing love for the lost. Joyfully, laying down our freedoms as Christ did. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that we fall so, so short of your holy commandments. Lord, that's not an excuse to, to wallow in sin. Lord, we look to Christ who died for our sins, recognizing that, that our sins, even so-called small sins, warranted, they were so wicked that they warranted the death of you, Lord Jesus. Help us, I pray, to look to you and to see your example and to cry out to you for forgiveness 
where we fall short and we all fall so short. And Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit as we behold you, Lord Jesus, that we will grow in our understanding of the gospel, grow in living out the gospel, grow in our willingness, our desire, and practically laying down our lives, laying down our freedoms for believer and for unbeliever alike, for the glory of your name and for the building of your kingdom. For we pray in Christ's name, amen.